Last Sunday, we began a series. Chapters two and three of Revelation contain letters to seven churches. Seven churches which were in what is now the western part of Turkey. Last Sunday, we studied about the letter to the Ephesian Christians, those at Ephesus. We learned a little about the background of that city, <clears throat> and I'd like to share a little bit about the background of the city in the second letter, the letter to Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was located approximately 35 miles north of Ephesus. <clears throat> Ephesus had a great harbor, and also Smyrna has a great harbor. Smyrna's harbor was one that could be closed off in case of time of war. That gave it an advantage. And to the letter that we find written to Smyrna, we found only good things said. Five of the seven letters point out problems that need to be changed, rectified. But Smyrna is one of the two letters where there's nothing that is pointed out that needs to be changed. That's great. I hope as God looks at us as a people, he finds that we are doing well and do not have to change things, but we need to be open if God wants to speak to us in some way. The situation way back in Smyrna in those days, by the way, today it's called Izmir, and I understand they still have at least a quarter million people live there. And one of the interesting things about Smyrna is that there are a lot of Christians there, unlike many of the other cities. I understand not too long ago they considered about 50% of Smyrna was Christian, basically of the Orthodox faith. But here this church that was doing well in those days has persisted through the ages. They've let the light of Jesus shine through them. Now, in addition to having a beautiful harbor, an important harbor, it was a center for trade. Hermas River came down the valley and that would bring in trade and there was road, especially, that came to that spot. And so like Ephesus, it was a great city of commercial value. A lot of people were well-to-do. We find that Smyrna was a very important political city. In fact, it had been the first, I understand, way back about two centuries BC to erect a temple to Dea Roma, goddess of Rome. And in 26 AD, it was chosen out of seven places to honor Caesar, Tiberius Caesar at that time, successor to Augustus, to honor him as a god. At that point, Romans were not compelled to accept this, but this city received the privilege 
of being the one chosen out of the seven to have a place to honor Tiberius Caesar as a god. Of course, we know that was a terrible thing to do. Why would they do such a thing? Well, Rome had a great deal of influence over a large area and of various peoples. And they thought this was a way to bring loyalty to Rome, to honor the emperor as if he were a god, that this would be a great unifying force. Later, it became compulsory for Roman citizens. Under Titus Domitian, it was a law that you had to honor him as God. And of course, that presented a great problem for Christians, as in Smyrna, to honor any man as if he were God. We see that the true God took a dim view of one of the Herods who was receiving adulation as God in the latter part of Acts chapter 12. At that point under Domitian, it became a law, and you were an outlaw if you didn't honor him, Domitian, Titus Domitian, as God. That's the Titus that earlier had destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. His dad, Vespasian, had been emperor, and then he became emperor from 81 to 96 AD. So this city of Smyrna had been very politically active, very patriotic, very much going along with this idea of calling the emperor a god. So this would become a very, very dangerous place, would it not, for Christians to live. We find problems developing throughout the world where it seems to be more and more difficult to be a Christian. There appears to be more persecution and prejudice against Christian people. The title of the message today is taken from the passage, and it's Be Faithful to Death. Smyrna was also a beautiful city, been laid out, I understand, by Alexander the Great in the fourth century BC. Broad streets, they had a lot of temples, even one to Zeus, as well as Aphrodite and Asclepios and other ones. They'd been on the right side, and they were a free city, and they were an assize city, as also was Ephesus. That's where one of the leading officials would come periodically to hold court. As I said all this, I want to point out that there is great similarity to much of the situation for the people in Smyrna as they are for people in our country today. Our country isn't so awfully different in commercial value, in political control, in other things, but we thank God that we do yet have the freedom in our republic, which we do have. Many other things could be said here about Smyrna. I will mention that it claimed to be the birthplace of Homer, 
Perhaps in school you studied the Iliad and the Odyssey. Homer wrote about that around four centuries after it happened. And you've heard about the horse that was introduced into Troy and how that ended up destroying the Trojans. Actually, that was not a part of the Iliad and the Odyssey. It was added later. At any rate, we need to realize that what is said here to Smyrna has relevance for us today here in our country and for Christians throughout the world. Let's read the letter now that was written to these faithful people in Smyrna. Revelation begins in chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and is alive. I know your works and trouble and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews, but they are not, but instead they are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Look, the devil shall throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you shall have trouble ten days. Be faithful to death, and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. A rather short message, but an encouraging, good and accurate message. Now, as with other letters, we find an introductory reference back to the vision that John had seen in Revelation chapter 1. Here in 2.8, these things says the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. How does that apply to the introductory vision of chapter 1? Well, notice in verse 11, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. This is the one who is speaking to John in this first chapter. He says he's the first and the last. Now, what's that mean? Another way of saying it, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Back in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, it talks about Jehovah God saying, I am the first and the last. Therefore, we know that the one who appeared in chapter 1 to John, this glorious appearance, is Jesus. He's God Almighty. He's the one who is dead and is alive. It goes on to say that, and going down to verses 17 and 18, again at the end of 17, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So it's Jesus. This almighty God that appears to John is also Jesus Christ. We find this is so true and 
enlightening. There are some who claim that it's not Jesus in chapter 1, but it's proven to be Jesus by verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1, and then him referring back to it here in chapter 2 in the way that he does. God is that, is he not? He's the beginning and the ending, the first and the last, God Almighty, who existed before all things, who made everything, who keeps everything going, and who has come in the person of Jesus to redeem us and to help us and to lead us on. So it's from the first and the last, the one who was alive and who died and came alive again. Jesus rose from the dead. Back to 2.9, Revelation. I know your works and trouble and poverty. It's a comforting thing that God knows all about us, isn't it? It's great to know that he takes notice of the good things we do for him and how we help other people. Christians are created and made for the purpose of good works. We see this in Ephesians 2.10. And so we are fulfilled as we accomplish this purpose of God for our lives, to live a life of service, to live a life of worship, to live a life letting his light shine brightly through us. So as we go through our days, day by day, from morning, noon, and night, what we do for the Lord, he sees. I know your works. But also, he knows our trouble, tribulation. If you're going through a tough time, know that God knows all about it. You're not alone. And like was mentioned earlier, he will never leave us or forsake us. God knows all about it. He knows our troubles. He's with us. This reminds me of Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters because I know their sorrows. As he knew the sorrows and troubles of the people in Egypt that were made into slaves, so he knows our sorrows, he knows our troubles. He's with us in whatever difficult situation we may find ourselves. So he's not only with us in our works, in our troubles, but it mentions in our poverty as well. You gather that most Christians didn't share in the wealth of the commercial aspects of this city. But God knew about it. Many Christians throughout the years have not been wealthy people. In fact, it talks about that back in the book of James. 
in chapter 2. We find that you have despised the poor, it says in verse 6. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before judgment seat. So by and large, through the years, Christians have been poor in material goods. But they've been rich in God's sight. And he goes on to say that here in Revelation 2, verse 9. After he says, I know your works and trouble and poverty, he says, but you are rich. Think of yourself as rich in spiritual things. As a believer in Jesus, think of yourself as a rich person, not necessarily in physical things, but in spiritual. The physical will pass away. The spiritual will last forever. And so you have something that is eternal. He knows our works. He knows our troubles. He knows our financial situations. In his sight, we are spiritually rich. What a wonderful thought this is. And I know the blasphemy, he goes on to say in verse 9, of them who say they are Jews, and they are not, but they are the synagogue of Satan. So there was a strong opposition to Christianity there in Smyrna coming from the Jewish people. Now, a lot of people, therefore, don't like Jewish people, and they persecute them. Throughout the years, Jews have been persecuted in Russia and Europe and elsewhere. Hitler, of course, especially, tried to kill all of them, killed millions of them. Does this mean we should join in with that kind of thinking? Not at all. In fact, the first time I got to speak to a Jew about the Lord, I felt honored. We need to have Paul's attitude. But what was his attitude? Romans chapter 9, we discover what his attitude was in verse 3. Paul said, I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brothers my relatives according to the flesh. Paul was a Jew, and his attitude toward them, even though he got persecuted because he was a Christian, was that he would almost wish that he could not be a Christian, not have God's forgiveness, if he could reach them and help them come to the Lord. Isn't that the attitude we should all have, not only to Jews but to other peoples? regardless of the color of skin, regardless of the ethnicity, even regardless of the religion, we should care for them. We should seek to enlighten them about Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer, verse 10. Yes, they were going to go through a trial of suffering, Look, the devil shall throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you shall have tribulation, trouble, 10 days. Perhaps this means a, 
wave of persecution 10 different times. Whatever it means, there was going to be trouble and they need to be prepared for it. Jesus warned them repeatedly that they would suffer persecution. Paul mentions it in 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And he said, they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But the wonderful thing is, as was pointed out earlier, he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. But the fact that it mentioned persecution 10 days points out there would be an end to this particular persecution time. And in our lives, we may go through tough times, but it's not forever, especially as a Christian. It's in God's hands and he'll be with us and he'll help us through all these difficult situations. But this wonderful command, be faithful to death and I will give you a crown of life. Focus on those words, be faithful to death. You see, when a person accepts Jesus Christ, the one who died for his sin and rose from the dead, God's son, the Messiah, when a person really truly trusts in him, it's not a temporary matter. It's something that is for life. A lot of people, when they got married, they'd say, yes, that they're going to stay together forever, but they don't. That's unfortunate when they don't. But here, when we accept Christ, this is a lifetime commitment. This is someone in whom we trust for the rest of our lives. And death does not part us. He's with us and we're with him forever. And so they're encouraged and we are encouraged. Be faithful to death throughout the whole life that you have left. Be serving the Lord, be trustworthy, keep believing in him and living for him. So we have this warning and this promise, do we not? Notice crown of life. What a wonderful thought, a crown of life. <laughs> Several crowns are mentioned in the New Testament. This one highlights life, spiritual life, eternal life. When we believe in Jesus, we're forgiven. We're God's children, and it goes on forever in a wonderful relationship with God Almighty, the Almighty God. And then it concludes in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not only Jesus, but the Spirit. Holy Spirit is saying this to the churches in Revelation. I believe he's saying it to us, whatever is applicable. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, what is it talking about, second death? Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 defines that. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So those who are faithful to death, who believe in Jesus, who live for him, that has no control over them. God has made them free. Many times people in their suffering 
can show forth the Lord Jesus, sometimes maybe better than when things are going well. It's also been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I have here in my hand a book that I've used a lot, background and other things about these messages. And it tells about one of the martyrs in Smyrna. You may have heard the name, Polycarp. How many of you have heard about Polycarp? <laughs> Anybody? Maybe you have and you just don't think about it right away. Polycarp was a Christian leader in Smyrna. It was about 155 AD where he was called upon to offer a pinch of incense and say Caesar is Lord, like we said was established under Domitian years before. But he and other Christians would not do this. There was one Lord, one true Lord, and that is God Almighty. And so he was given the opportunity of offering that pinch of incense. They were to do this each year if they were a Roman citizen and say that Caesar is Lord, an act of patriotism. And they were given certificates if they would do this, I understand. But he and other Christians wouldn't do it. Well, what happened to him? They got him and he was set up to be burned to death. And rather than change his mind, Polycarp said, 80 and six years I have served Christ and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so though he was an old man, he remained faithful to death. Later he said, it is well, I do not fear the fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. Why do you delay? Come and do your will. Then I understand as the flames licked his body, he prayed his great prayer. I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I may receive a portion in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. Wasn't that a beautiful way to be faithful unto death? Book of Revelation also talks about martyrs later on in chapter six of Revelation beginning with verse nine. Here's what we find, Revelation 6, 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were killed for the word of God and for the witness which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them who live on the earth? And white robes were given to every one of them 
And it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brothers who should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. There's a special place for martyrs, those who physically give their lives in their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, he led the way, didn't he? He died. Later, Stephen died. The third letter to be considered next week, one of the martyrs is named by the name of Antipas. And through the years, many have given their lives for the Lord Jesus. I understand way back in those days, they even had classes to help prepare you <laughs> to be a martyr. As I said earlier, many times through suffering, good things can come. Have any of you ever heard of a man that was in the gulag, the Russian gulag for many years named Solzhenitsyn? And he, yeah, one person, yeah, another, yeah, several of you have heard of Solzhenitsyn. Very beautiful story about him. Maybe you've read the book Loving God by Chuck Colson who is called the hatchet man of Richard Nixon, who later became a Christian. At any rate, in his book, Loving God, sort of a classic. If you haven't read it, I recommend you do so. He tells about a Dr. Kornfeld, who was in the gulag, as Solzhenitsyn was in the gulag. Doctors kind of had a little position above the ordinary prisoners because they were doctors and doctors were needed, but they still had their tough times. This Dr. Kornfeld was a Jewish man, not a religious Jewish man, but culturally he was a Jewish person and he was a descendant of Abraham that way. So here he was in the gulag, gulag doing his doctoring work, helping people in a physical sense. He was not looking for the Messiah. He was not a follower in practice, particularly of Moses. And often they would have him sign certificates saying a certain prisoner was capable of going through some really bad torture, you might say saying they physically could do that. He didn't dare, along with other doctors, not sign these things. <laughs> they were scared not to sign them, even though they didn't want to, some of them. There was a, another prisoner in the gulag, gulag that talked with Dr. and they, he told him about Jesus. And he would often pray the Lord's Prayer. And you remember that part, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He heard this prayer. He had hatred in his heart toward those that were doing this to him. A big, strong hatred. They had orderlies there at the gulag orderlies that were prisoners but who were kind of turncoats against their own people who were informers and helping those in charge, the guards and others. The other prisoners did not like the orderlies. 
One particular time he was taking care of a person who had pellagra, needed good food. And they would provide food for these sick people that needed. And one day he found one of these orderlies gorging down the bread that had been provided that could be life-saving for those that had this pellagra. He'd just seen this sad case. And he saw this orderly just stealing this and gorging it down and perhaps taking away the only hope that that sick person had. And he was so angry, so hateful, that such a thing would happen. He had an opportunity of killing someone in surgery. All he had to do was not properly tie a certain vein and later it would loosen, the person would die and no one would know what happened. And he was so full of hate that he decided he'd do that. But then he thought about what the Christian had prayed, the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we've forgiven those who trespass against us. And the amazing thing happened. He trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not want to be in that kind of slave position of being controlled by hatred like others were. And as he truly trusted the Lord and looked to God, a miracle happened. That hatred was gone. He no longer had that hatred and that desire for revenge. No longer wanted to kill that person. It was such a profound change that he felt totally free. He felt freer than any other Russian. <laughs> he was freed from the fear of death. He was freed to not sign those certificates. He was freed to say what he wanted to and not to say. Now this would be very, very dangerous. Very dangerous indeed. The orderly he reported. That was an amazing thing. So the orderly had to suffer for three or four days. But when the orderly got out, apparently he was behind the murder of Dr. Kornfeld. He was sleeping in another place at the hospital, hoping that he wouldn't be killed, but he knew he could at any time. Be hard to live under that kind of a circumstance, would it not? Well, after the orderly was released, he was found having been hit by a mallet, apparently eight times, and, and killed. But before he had died, he'd had a person that had cancer of the intestines. And he wanted to share about what happened to his soul with Jesus Christ. And so he shared with this patient. Part of it the patient couldn't hear because of anesthetic, but he got a lot of it, a whole lot of it. And then he learned later how the doctor had been murdered. 
And he got to thinking about it all and what the doctor had said. The doctor had talked to him in that afternoon and that evening. The transformation that had happened in him by Jesus. And so that person that had intestinal cancer and had been operated on. And considering what the doctor had said about Jesus. Guess what? He accepted the Lord. He became a changed person as well through the witness of this martyr, you might say, Dr. Kornfeld. The patient that got converted was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Those of you that remember him from years ago, he came to our country and he spoke many things of truth. <laughs> he was an outspoken person for the Lord and for righteousness. Our witness can produce enormous changes. We are to be faithful unto death. Once we accept the Lord, we're to follow him. Jesus said, he who endures to the end, the same shall be saved. <laughs> he who overcomes, what wonderful promises. Think of that crown of life. Think of the eternal presence of Jesus with you. Think of how he's with you in your works, in your troubles, in your financial situations, in everything in life. Give him honor and glory and praise. Worship him with fellow Christians. Live for him in your home, at work, wherever you may be. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you a crown of life. May we have prayer together. May we rededicate ourselves to Jesus. May we decide anew and afresh to be faithful even unto death when we leave this world and help us die daily for him. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We pray that you'd forgive us, help us to truly be faithful to you always never to pull away from you, but to keep loving you, to be persevering in the ways of Jesus and the ways of God and the ways of his light. Help us, Lord, each and every one. May we now commit ourselves to you. Now to him who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, may he make us perfect in every good work to do his will working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, who gave his blood for us, in whose name we pray, amen.